A week in which the government could have collapsed. A week in which the country was haunted by two scars of its past. A week in which the country was revulsed by the state's failure to remove a disabled and helpless woman from an abusive home that the state itself had put her into. A week in which the country was haunted by the reminder that in the past it allowed pregnant women to be sent to what were supposed to be sanctuaries, where their children died and their remains could be left in a septic tank. A week in which the country also tried to heal some wounds felt by one of its most marginalised communities. A week in which Leinster House bade farewell to a former colleague. In other words, a busy week. So let's get to it. I'm Gavin Riley. this is Today FM, and that was The Week. We'll get to that latest government crisis over water charges in just a little while, but before we get to that and to dwell over the prospects of an election being called over it, there's a few other major issues we need to get to first. Now, if you listened to the first episode of this podcast series two weeks ago, you'll be more than familiar with the crisis surrounding the treatment of Morris McCabe, the existence of a Tusla file with false allegations of sexual abuse made against him, and how the political crisis over the handling of all of that has ultimately brought forward Enda Kenny's departure date. But then if you did listen to last week's episode, you'll have heard almost nothing about it. So how did that happen? Well, it's because just a fortnight ago, the Dole and Shannon agreed to set up a tribunal to investigate the smearing of McCabe, the existence of the Tusla file and a whole series of other linked issues. Now, to a degree that pours political concrete over the matter, there's little point in having a political row about how an issue was handled when you've already set up a full state inquiry to investigate exactly how it was handled. But to everyone's surprise, it didn't take long for the new tribunal to get up and running. In fact, just 11 days after being set up by the Oireachtas, Justice Peter Charlton of the Supreme Court of Ireland took to the President's room in Dublin Castle, Dublin 2, and got it up and running. And he warned, in not as many words, he's not going to take any bullshit. This tribunal is here to establish the truth. Ni Black can be made into white, but not convincingly. This tribunal is a drain on the resources of the Irish people and it is paid for by their submission to the democratic structures of which taxation has been a central part in our tradition. Every lie told to this tribunal will be a waste of what ordinary men and women have paid for through their unremitting efforts. Every action of obfuscation, of diversion of focus and of non-cooperation is unwelcome for that reason. Now, tribunals get a bad rap in Ireland for being expensive and for taking far longer than anyone had expected. Charlton himself remarked in his opening statement that previous tribunals had been held up largely because of high court actions trying to sound out the limits of what exactly a tribunal can do. Now that those issues have been sorted out, he says there's no reason to work dramatically beyond his expected time frame of nine months. But at the expect... But at the same time, he warned about two legal speed bumps in the near future. The first relates to his task of examining whether Morris McCabe was smeared at a previous public commission. Now, you might remember some reports that when a previous inquiry was set up to investigate the allegations of Garda misconduct in Calvin Monaghan, allegations, by the way, which were brought forward by McCabe himself, the Garda Commissioner's legal team reportedly set out to challenge his integrity and his motives. In fact, McCabe himself claims that there was even an attempt to introduce the alleged sex crimes as evidence against him in the commission. It's all very serious stuff and Charlton is now being asked to investigate. But he wondered, can he really force Noreen O'Sullivan to discuss her instructions to her lawyers? Is there a privilege against disclosing instructions given by a client to their lawyer as to what is to be pursued in cross-examination? 
Submissions will be heard on that matter since it is now a matter of conjecture as to what happened. The original transcript of the O'Higgins Commission is already in the possession of the tribunal and is being read in full. The matter will be further explored. Usually speaking, contact between a lawyer and their client is confidential and privileged. Imagine, for example, a murderer who hires a lawyer in an attempt to get off the hook. He might well admit to his lawyer that he did it, but that's confidential. Nobody expects the lawyer to then go into court and admit to the judge that he's after getting a confession from his client. That applies across the board, and it's not at all clear if a tribunal can force the Garda Commissioner, or indeed anyone for that matter, to reveal exactly what instructions she gave to her lawyers. The other potential speed bump, which comes far closer to home for the likes of myself, surrounds journalists. Now, usually journalists are entitled to keep their sources private. They're not required to tell a court or a Garda who told them what and when. But just as Charlton said, maybe that's not so clear-cut either. Is there a privilege against giving evidence including relevant records, where someone communicates in confidence or off the record, as the phrase goes, to a journalist. If that privilege exists, does it exist because of the public interest in protecting investigations by the media? Does journalistic privilege attach to communications to a journalist where that communication by the source may not have been in the public interest, but instead where the source is perhaps solely motivated by detraction or calumny. Submissions will be heard on this issue and a ruling may be necessary. For that ruling to be made, facts will need to be established. (coughs) A primary source of such facts would appear to be the journalists to whom such allegations were allegedly made. This, according to the terms of reference, looks as if it may need to be pursued. And it's a good point. For a few weeks now, journalists have been debating whether they have a responsibility to protect a source when that source is actually only using them to spread slander or malicious lies. But now it seems that Justice Charlton might need to think about making a formal legal ruling on this. It could then mean that journalists could be compelled to attend the tribunal and face questions about whether they had been witness to a smear campaign directed by Garda HQ. Now that poses its own difficulties for journalists in the short term, but it would also open up a whole series of longer term concerns as well. If the judge rules that Irish law does not entitle journalists to protect a source, at least if that source is being malicious, then that would be a serious concern for journalists. Now we already have to take what sources say, certain times with a pinch of salt, we have to go away and fact check and verify it and establish the truth for ourselves. But that could be made all the more tricky if a journalist then has to second-guess the motives of their source before they can build a story based on what they've been told. It's an issue that will no doubt be the subject of quite a lot of commentary in the weeks and months ahead. In the meantime, by the way, the Commission needs your help. Are you a witness to this matter? Then the Tribunal needs your help and needs it urgently. Many have already indicated publicly and in various circumstances that they have some knowledge now the opportunity has arrived to cooperate with this tribunal. That air code is D02Y337. You've got two weeks to write to it. As a coda to all of this, the man who was running the Department of Justice during all of this time, the former Fine Gael TD Alan Shatter, was on RTE Radio on Friday morning. Last year he won a case at the Court of Appeal, trying to quash the findings of the Gearan Report, which accused him of mishandling Mars McCabe's complaints. This week he also had costs awarded in his favour and that appeared to be the end of the matter. But it's not the end of the matter for Shatter. He spoke to RTE's Sean O'Rourke. Are are you saying, by the way, just to be clear about this, effectively, are you saying that you were sacked by Enda Kenny? 
Of course I was. I was put under pressure by him. The message from Enda Kenny was that I will not, at 4.30 that afternoon in the Doyle, be able to express confidence in you. Uh, and, and quite clearly, the message was that I should resign. So I resigned in the context of my knowledge of that. I also was quite clearly uh, considered that if the Gearan report was published, that once it was published, the media frenzy and the opposition frenzy would continue and my position would become right, by way uh, of untenable. Yikes, but that's not all. He then went on to make comments about the findings of the Fennelly Commission, which looked at the circumstances of Martin Callanan's abrupt resignation as Garda Commissioner. Judge Fennelly, when it came to aspects of the Taoiseach's uh, evidence and when it came to aspects of the Attorney General's evidence, uh, didn't accept their evidence and accepted evidence given uh, by uh, Mr Martin Fraser, the Taoiseach Secretary General, uh, by uh, by uh, Brian Person and myself, and corroborating evidence given the following day by Eamon Gilmore. So I, I think the unfortunate reality is, uh, yes, that in some areas the Taoiseach has a casual relationship with the truth. And my uh, view of the Fine Gael party, what's integral to the Fine Gael party, is that the truth matters, the rule of law matters, yeah, but to, to and question fair procedures asked. matter. And so here you have a former loyalist of Enda Kenny now saying that Kenny has a casual relationship with the truth and he's the Taoiseach. Yikes. Shatter went on to ostensibly call for the Gearan report to be fully withdrawn and for an apology from Kenny. A spokesman replied that Kenny had already acknowledged in the Dáil that Shatter had actually done no wrong at all and that the Gearan report had been removed from all websites last year after Shatter won his case in the Court of Appeal. The spokesman also quoted Shatter's resignation letter when he said, quote, I believe you're an extraordinary Taoiseach, doing an extraordinary job during what has been a very difficult time for our country and I want to thank you for all the assistance and support that you have given me. He also rejected the charge made by Shatter that Kenny had a casual relationship with the truth. Although, when you consider his fumbling explanation of his account of matters related to Morris McCabe only two weeks ago, how he gave anecdotal evidence of a phone call that in fact never took place, and how all of that has ultimately brought forward Kenny's departure as Taoiseach, that too is open to question. 100 to 102 Today FM Another major issue that we need to touch on before we get to water is what was included in two reports issued by the HSE on Tuesday morning. They concern a woman born in 1978 suffering from microcephaly, a condition which results in a slightly smaller brain than normal. Her mother was single and wasn't in a position to care for her. The girl, who has become known through the media as Grace, although that's not her real name, was left in state care. At the age of 10, she was put into the care of a foster family in the southeast. She was one of 47 children to have been in their care over time. Hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, but as Dr Cahill Morgan, the HSE's Head of Disability Services, says, it is now clear, following the release of these two reports, that she shouldn't have been left there. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand that at a very human level, when something is being identified as a clear and obvious risk, that you act um, and clearly action wasn't taken. It, it's, it's patently obvious when you read the reports that action could have been taken. And at a very human, decent level, if intervention was followed through and taken, um, there's no doubt in my mind that it actually would have made a difference. And that's the point I was trying to make in terms of the various junctures that, that, that I've, I've, I've seen in the reports in terms of where action could have been taken. He also listed the harrowing litany of cases where Grace should have been removed. In 2004, there was a potential to move to residential care. This was not followed through. In 2008, the birth mother of the service user in question did provide consent for a move to residential care, which was not followed through. In March 2009, following review at the Sexual Assault Treatment Unit, 
Most regrettably, the service user was brought back to the um, to the original foster home. The two reports don't make for easy reading. Grace was meant to be a regular visitor to certain day centres, but would occasionally be missing for weeks at a time. When she would return, she would have serious bruises. Her foster family would plead ignorance. They would argue that she must have got them on the bus travelling to her daycare centre. But questions have to be asked when the parents of other children reported that their kids were locked in closets and wardrobes in the same foster home. And surely questions should have been raised when Grace, who incidentally had a habit of stripping, possibly triggered by a certain passphrase, showed signs of bruising on her breasts and genitals. It's all utterly and completely harrowing. The HSE says only now, because the reports have been released, can it start a HR process against the staff involved. It is very complex what's being described and... It is not a situation that's just particular to the HSE. Other state agencies, other government bodies also face the same challenges that we face. How do you progress matters when reports are generated outside of HR policies and procedures, which then impact directly in and for to progress staff-related matters, we need to go through HR policies. But only five staff connected with the Grace case are actually still with the HSE. Six more are with TUSLA, the separate child and family agency, which was spun off from the HSE in 2014. But John McGuinness, the former chairman of the Public Accounts Committee, which brought the case to light, isn't at all convinced that the HSE will actually end up pursuing the people responsible. They can never be pursued. Uh, justice is denied to these people. It has been denied. And in fact, during the course of the uh, efforts by the whistleblower to become the committee of that person through the courts, it was the HSE who provide most of the obstacles uh, and put those obstacles in their way. Back in Leinster House, meanwhile, the case was making waves. There are clear-cut instances of abuse of the gravest kind here, both in the treatment of Grace and others in foster care and of the failure of health officials to ensure her care and safety. So Taoiseach, who is responsible? We also have what is alleged to have been a cover-up Last year's Dignam report said of the two reports published this morning that there were shortcomings in them and that there was an allegation that crucial files may have been deliberately destroyed by persons unknown. That is a very disturbing and a damning allegation. Thanks, Lassenkola. First of all, um, the very least this House can do is apologise to Grace and her family. Her her treatment was was a disgrace to us as a country. HSE today has apologised to anyone who experienced serious failings in the care received and the significant failures of the former Southeastern Health Board. Many observers thought the Taoiseach's apology was perhaps a bit mealy-mouthed, almost absent-minded, something which couldn't be said of the apology which came from Finian McGrath. First of all, I just want to, in relation to the, to the Grace case, I want to, strong, uh, strong, to emphasise strongly how concerned I am about these serious allegations. We need to establish the facts. We need decisive action. And we also need to ensure that uh, leadership is taken in relation to how we deal with these issues in the future. Can I also offer my full apology to Grace, her family and all the other residents who are in state care who who have suffered in these terrible situations. He said he would next week ask Cabinet to sign off on the terms of reference for a new commission of investigation to get to the bottom of the matter. But the question had to be asked, is that really necessary? Inclusion Ireland, the representative body for disabled people in Ireland, isn't quite so sure. The abuse of not getting out for many hours in a day, spending 14, 15 hours sitting in a chair in a service. So we know without 
any doubt that people are being abused today in these settings and there is no there isn't sufficient energy from government hse and the department of health to move people out of these inappropriate institutions and so the question had to be put to finian mcgrath what questions are there that actually need answering uh, well I, i'd have to disagree with that but i would i would know i would also notice as part of uh, part of my work and i'm working with vulnerable people with disabilities i work very very closely with inclusion ireland and i would listen to their view but as far as i'm concerned i just want this commission we give a commitment to the people, I think we owe it to Grace. We need to get the we need to get a proper uh, uh, commission of investigation to see the issue resolved once and for all, and build and design disability services for vulnerable people in the future. And I think that commission has the potential to do that. If there is one matter that deserves inquiry, it's the fact that a decision was made in 1996 to remove Grace from the abusive foster home. The family complained. They included writing letters to the Minister for Health at the time, who was Michael Noonan. And Noonan passed the letter on to his junior minister, Austin Curry, who in turn passed it back to the Southeastern Health Board. Eventually, the decision was overturned, but it's not clear by whom or on what basis or whether Noonan's intervention had any role to play. Now, there was a lot of commentary on Twitter and elsewhere on social media on Tuesday asking why Noonan's role wasn't being mentioned in the press. The simple fact is that the reports released on Tuesday simply didn't focus on Michael Noonan's role. There was only passing mention of the fact that he'd been lobbied in the first place. The questions about his handling, and in particular the allegation from a former Fine Gael councillor who says Noonan quite literally ran away from him when he tried to discuss the matter at an Ardesh in the 1990s, all those questions had arisen before Tuesday, and they'll remain after Tuesday. They simply didn't merit a huge amount of discussion on Tuesday because they weren't the subject of the reports issued on Tuesday. But questions like that do remain, and Finian McGrath, for one, was asked for his thoughts. Well, I've looked at that uh, that correspondence, and I know there was two minister, uh, two at the time, minister for health and minister of state directly involved in it. Uh, I don't think there's any concerns there. But again, that is that is going to be included in the terms of reference, and I think that has to be examined very, very closely and objectively. But if you're, I, I'd rather wait for the final decision. Have you that to Michael I have, yes. And what did he say? Uh, as far I, I met Michael Luna last week. And uh, we, we, we I, with my officials in the Department of Health, um, we uh, gave them an update on the, the correspondence that was there. And but the, the, we're, we're satisfied that, that that'll be dealt with within the commission. But my own my gut reaction is I don't think there's answer to answer. Incidentally, for the record, here is Michael Noonan's full answer when his handling of the Grace case was raised during the general election campaign in February 2016. Uh, when I heard about it, I had accessed the file in the Department of Health. There was two pieces of correspondence there. It's 20 years ago. I had no clear memory of it. And uh, there was a complaint in. And uh, I referred it through the officials back to the Southeastern Health Board that were the authority at the time. And we were told that the young woman in question or the young child, the child in question had been removed from uh, the foster home. Uh, some weeks later, it transpired that the eastern, the southeastern health board officials who had made the decision uh, had uh, reversed the decision for some reason. Now, Austin Curry uh, was the junior minister with responsibility for children at the Department of Health at that time, and we referred it on to him. Now, I understand that Con- the late Councillor uh, O'Halloran, whom I, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure I met him, uh, you know, when I was minister, because I met a lot of councillors. I'm not sure whether he was Waterford or Wexford, but he was down in the southeast anyway. And uh, I reject the, his version of events. Uh, the Minister for Children was Austin Curry, 
and an arrangement was made for uh, Gary O'Halloran, I understand, and some people who were with him uh, to discuss the issue with Austin Curry. Beyond that, I don't know anything, uh, but I'm prepared to cooperate fully uh, with whatever inquiry is put in place after the election. Do you regret that, as Minister for Health, that a non was done at that time, given the fact that Grace was left... No, 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 no. You're making. As I understand it, what we have at present is a series of allegations that need to be inquired into. I understand there's no proof on on either side, and I don't want to say anything that gets me into legal difficulty to satisfy your curiosity. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, I've given you an absolute straight answer on everything I know. I can't be responsible for third parties who make allegations about me, which I refute. There are already now three independent reports into the handling of the Grace case and others at the same foster home in the southeast. There are very few facts actually left to determine, but there are some. And after this long, it does appear urgent that those questions be answered. 100 to 102 Today FM. And just in case we thought that was the only dark shadow of Ireland's past, Friday morning brought a bombshell of its own. Another commission of investigation, which has been beavering away quietly for a couple of years, is being run by Judge Yvonne Murphy into the operation of mother and baby homes in Ireland. It was set up a couple of years ago after public outcry at the fact that bones had been found at a septic tank on the site of the former Bon Secours home in Chum in County Galway. Local historian Catherine Corliss had researched and found that while there were records of 796 children dying in that facility during its operation, there was no formally recognised burial ground. On Friday morning, the Commission unexpectedly issued another update in its work. And the update wasn't exactly a bombshell, but it was still galling and deeply unsettling. Catherine Zappone, the minister who is now responsible for the inquiry, was visually shocked. The Commission's excavations have revealed that human remains are visible in a series of chambers that may have formed part of sewage treatment works at the home. It is not certain whether the chambers ever functioned for sewage purposes, but the Commission believes that there are a significant number of children's remains there. The Commission recovered some juvenile remains for detailed forensic analysis, and from this analysis it has determined that the remains are between 35 fetal weeks and two to three years of age. She said she'd now go ahead with discussions with the families of the victims and with residence groups to discuss exactly what to do with the remains. Some may want to reinter the remains in family plots. Others might want the remains that are there to be allowed to remain in peace. What of the Gardaí? She said it would be up to the coroner to decide if there was a role for Gardaí to investigate. The coroner had been formally notified about the remains. She also said that the sample reported was only that. It was a sample and that it wasn't possible to say with certainty exactly how many humans had been buried in that pit. Was it 796? Could, in fact, the number be higher? Nobody could say. That in itself was shocking, but equally upsetting was some news that emerged quietly afterwards. As we left government buildings, I was approached by a woman who said she recognised me from occasional appearances on TV. Her name is Anna Corrigan. Her mother was a former resident in the home in Chum. Two of her brothers were born there. She had just arrived in a taxi, hoping she'd be able to get some clarity on what had just been announced. I put forward the premise to the guard that two years ago you go in and you dig it up. I've applied for an exhumation licence. I've done everything I possibly could and can do to actually find my brothers. And the guard wouldn't go to the coroner. There's no medical certification of death for any of those children in there, which is necessary under the Coroner's Act. And they won't follow that up either. I certainly, I have no intention of going 
and standing around a septic tank in order to pray for my brothers that I never knew, who I don't even know are in there because no one's taken my DNA to compare it with. They had diggers in there, they had they had big trunks outside and they're taking away soil and bones, but yet they never bothered to contact the Tune Babies family group. The crux of Anna's complaints, which were completely understandable, were that the victims' groups or local residents hadn't been officially told that remains were recovered at the site. In fact, the first that Anna had heard that her brother's body might have been recovered was via Twitter. There was tweets up on social media that um, human remains had been found. Uh, the jigger is in, photographs the jigger. I had to send these to Judge Morphy and say, is this the correct way to actually inform family members of what's happening with their family? Now, it should be noted that Tume is not the only place where there's known to be a mass grave of children from a former mother and baby home, as Fianna Falls' Robert Troy reminded the doll back in 2014. This is a much wider issue, with anything between 300 and 500 babies uh, buried in Castle Pollard, with Sean Ross Abbey in Rasgay and Bessborough in Cork. Now, none of those mass graves take the form of septic tanks, but nonetheless, they are all mass graves of real-life human beings born in Ireland, of Irish citizens. That led Sinn Féin's Dunnock O'Leary to wonder whether those two should be excavated. There are fears that not all of these sites, even in Tume, were investigated. So obviously, I would say that if there is any evidence or anything to say that similar sites or similar mass graves exist on any of the other sites of the mother and baby homes, they also need to be investigated. And I want to discuss that with the uh, with Judge Yvonne Murphy. What he's proposing is an interesting prospect. Technically, it is the Oireachtas itself that sets up commissions of investigation, so there's no reason why the judge leading it couldn't be brought in for questions. We will watch this space. But one final observation before we move on. Mother and baby homes, and the fact that so many children died in them, is not a scar that can be blamed solely on the Catholic Church. Not all such homes were even Catholic in the first place. For example, there's a Bethany home in Rathgar, which was a Protestant facility for so-called fallen women. But it's not just a church thing either. The state itself propagated the mother and baby home system. It was a useful place. It was presented as something of a sanctuary for women who had fallen ill to the mere evils of having a reproductive system that worked even when they didn't want it to. The state played an active role in committing women to these homes. The state even sanctioned vaccine trials on children in those homes, allowing its most vulnerable citizens to be used as medical guinea pigs. So the rush may be to malign the church for this shameful stain in Ireland's past. It was certainly my gut reaction when I began to read the report the first time. But the church is only one player in this. The state itself, which is ultimately just you and me, the citizens of Ireland, we all, to some degree, share the blame on this one. 100 to 102 Today FM. Right, so, water. A storm quite literally in your teacups. Uh, for the last few months, an Oireachtas committee with 20 members has been hearing from a whole series of experts and campaign groups trying to figure out what to do about water. It met again on Tuesday to begin the process of signing off on its final report with its final recommendations. Now, bear in mind, this committee was only created under the deal between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, so it's worth remembering exactly what platforms that those two parties ran on. By the way, they account for 11 out of the 20 members, so really any compromise that's reached between them is really what's going to carry the day. Now, put simply, last year in the general election, Fine Gael wanted to retain domestic charges. It had introduced them, after all. Uh, Fianna Fáil, despite having sanctioned them for the first time in 2010, now wanted to scrap the charges entirely. 
Now, the expert group, which was also set up under the deal between those two parties, had fallen somewhere between the two. It had called for most charges to be scrapped and put through general taxation instead, with charges only levied on so-called wasteful users. Now, that's what most people expected to be the final compromise, as as it lay pretty much exactly between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. And so when the committee met on Tuesday, people thought it would be routine enough. But Fianna Fáil raised many eyebrows when they decided to stick to their guns, possibly under pressure from the left flank, and insisted that there couldn't be charges for wasteful users either. Now, journalists were told afterwards that we could expect an angry doorstep from Fine Gael's Martin Hayden, who was a member of the committee, but at short notice we were given the minister, Simon Coveney, instead. And he wasn't happy. What we need to work towards here to settle the issue of water once and for all, politically, uh, is to have a large majority supporting a way forward. Uh, We will then need to legislate for that. I'll need to legislate for it. Uh, And what I'm saying is we cannot ignore the independent legal advice of the Attorney General's office, the independent legal advice uh, of the department, uh, the, uh, the advice of the expert commission, and what the European Commission is saying. They're all saying the same thing now. Uh, And all they are looking for, uh, in my view, uh, is a a relatively modest charge for people who waste water uh, and use far above the average usage. We're happy to compromise uh, within reason, uh, but if that compromise involves us... um, you know, essentially doing something that is uh, exposing the state to uh, to legal action, then I don't think that as an office holder I can facilitate that. And if Coveney wasn't happy, others were even less so, especially after Coveney appeared to be backing away from his deal with Fianna Fáil, no, no longer prepared to commit to implementing the committee's findings whenever they might be. The following morning, Barry Cowan was pretty much apoplectic. So if he wants to play it by the rules, stand back and await the result of this committee in its deliberations and allow it do what it was intended to do. That's the process that hasn't concluded yet. And no minister, irrespective of who he is, has the right to interfere with what the Oireachtas put in place. And he needs to get that message loud and clear because we entered this process in the best of good faith, the best of good intentions, and we want to resolve this issue and, as Michael Noonan says, take the dead cat off the road. And if you refuse to legislate for that, is that your support for this government to the document? If he refuses to legislate, if he refuses to adhere to the confidence and supply agreement and what's contained within it, it's him that's tearing it up and it's him that's bringing down the government, yes. And meanwhile, Sinn Féin was also accusing Coveney of trying to bully the committee. Housing spokesman Owen O'Brien. They gave a commitment that whatever the outcome of the Oireachtas Committee on Water was, that they would legislate for that. What they're now trying to do is, before we've even finished our business, they're trying to influence the outcome by making bogus claims about EU legislation and EU law. They need to let the committee finish our work, and whatever it is that the committee recommends, they are honour-bound to legislate for that. In the Dáil, Enda Kenny was trying to sound conciliatory, but wasn't really for backing down. Or was he? I'm sure if ever you sit on these benches, as Minister for what, ever, uh, you would not be... Um, putting through legislation that you have very strong legal advice that it's illegal to do so. Deputy Count from Fianna Fáil is out on the plinth saying that if you don't agree to implement the legislation that's needed following the recommendation of the committee and of the Dáil, there will be an election. Most of the people in the Dáil got elected on a, ca- on a platform of being against the water charges. But it looks like a few stubborn heads over there 
are refusing to implement it. And I wouldn't fancy my chances running a general election campaign on the water charges Thank if you, I Deputy was with uh, Deputy Kenny still as leader as well. Uh, the agreement says what it says, and uh, it does say the government will facilitate the passage of legislation. That's what it says. Obviously, um, we also have an agreement in respect of uh, the support of the major opposition party in passing the budget. That's facilitating the budget without writing it. That final comment was telling. He appeared to be opening the door to allowing the opposition to put through the legislation and simply not have Fine Gael play a part. A door that Simon Coveney then went and closed that night, speaking to the Irish Times. And look, I could go through the whole twists and turns of this turmoil, but suffice it to say there was an awful lot of brinkmanship going on. Fine Gael insisted that it wouldn't legislate for anything which it thought was illegal. Fianna Fáil insisting that what it was proposing, which has the majority of members backing it, was in fact legal. And in fairness, Fianna Fáil did also release its legal advice, written by a junior counsel and a senior counsel. The junior, by the way, is a former Fianna Fáil election candidate, but not that it will detract from his legal expertise. And Simon Coveney said that he would consider arranging meetings between the Attorney General and the Water Committee to explain her standpoint. But on Friday evening, a chink of light appeared. Fine Gael asked for the Oireachtas' own separate legal team to intervene and make a ruling on whether Fianna Fáil's proposals were legal or not. It seems that basically where we are is that if Fine Gael's lawyer says one thing and Fianna Fáil's lawyers say another, they're just going to go best two out of three and send it to the independent in-house Oireachtas lawyer. Now, there's no indication as of the time of this recording if that was going to be accepted by Fianna Fáil, but the indications are that they could no longer ignore the advice of the Oireachtas' own legal team. And so the row that could have brought down the government probably won't. We'll have to wait and see. 100 to 102 Today FM. It's been pretty grim so far, so I should say that there was in the midst of this one moment of genuine warmth this week in Leinster House, albeit one which in its own way hammered home some of the constant frustrations that we have about the bubble in which politicians are made to do their work. On Wednesday night, the Dole held a short notice debate where Enda Kenny had a serious announcement to make. Robbie is a 17-year-old young man. The apple of his mother's eye, his future ahead of him, the world at his feet. Yet he has walked with his head down, no more. His mother, his family, his traveller community want Robbie to feel the same sense of hope and opportunity as every other young person in this country. So do I. Marshin Marhishuk, Ahniam Gohefigul, Gorgrup Etchnachid. As Tishuk, I now wish to formally recognise travellers as a distinct ethnic group within the Irish nation. Not only that, but we also had the quite extraordinary scenario of a Tishuk speaking traveller cant on the floor of the Dáil. May all the people of our nation live in the shelter and never in the shadow of each other. Or as the good traveller man taught me how to say... In the cant, this is a body tholisk for the mean care. Thank you. It was a genuinely uplifting experience, particularly as the public gallery was packed with members of the traveller community and of interest groups who had fought for recognition for travellers for such a long time. And indeed, they responded with enthusiasm to each and every speech made, which recognised the difficult journey to full legal recognition. I was particularly impressed by what Bernard Joyce, who summed up what today means to him as a traveller, when he said, having my identity recognised, defined and included, would enhance my pride of place in Irish society, my sense of being part of, rather than being separate to. 
Fundamentally, it's about respect and inclusion. Ethnicity is not the same as race, nationality or place of birth, and by recognising traveller ethnicity won't make us less Irish. It will, however, acknowledge our dual identity of being both Irish and traveller, similar to Irish Americans, African Americans, etc. Unquote. And that sums up what today is all about, and I want to congratulate all involved for bringing it about. This is a major step in the right direction tonight. We need to keep moving in that direction. It's a hugely historic moment for the 40,000 members of our traveller community. It's an important symbolic acknowledgement, but it must also pave the way for real practical change. Action must follow ethnicity. You know, we talk about people in America who went to America bringing it all back home to Ireland, but in fact the travelling community kept so much of our musical heritage right here in Ireland. And I think again that as we move into a new phase, that is something that we will surely continue to celebrate. Thank you. But therein lay the rub. Kenny's historical dull speech was meant to get underway at 6.45. Due to delays in other business, it didn't happen until just after 7. But even then, there were huge numbers in the gallery and there were even more outside. The dull chamber itself was only half full, but that was partly because there were so many TDs still outside trying to get their own accompanied visitors signed into the building. And even then when they did, there was no way for them to watch the proceedings because the gallery was already full. A few TDs had some novel ideas for accommodating them. I think the very least we could do is to try and um, make a plea, first of all, to any settled people in the gallery to give up their seats for the travellers who have come all the way. Now that it's happened, the people are outside. Can we try and take a break to facilitate people to make an exception and not turn people away who've already been quite marginalised in society? And I'm appealing to the Taoiseach and the Minister and the Superintendent to bear with us and try to facilitate that. We offered up the use of our party room. We, we can take up to 30 uh, people there. I'm sure that other parties would do exactly uh, the same. But unfortunately, those ideas simply couldn't be pursued, as explained by the Count Corla, Sean O'Farreel. My understanding is uh, that it's not a question of space, simply it's a question of personnel to uh, manage the crowd of people the large crowd, the unprecedented numbers of people that we have here. The numbers of people that we have here are welcome and we apologise to those people who have been inconvenienced and who are finding themselves uh, at, at the front gate. And that's the frustrating thing. It was such a momentous evening in the Dole. In fact, walking home afterwards, it was impossible not to smile at some of the happy scenes outside the gates on Kildare Street as travellers sang songs and laughed and joked and celebrated the fact that they were now recognised as a tribe within a tribe, a nation within a nation. But for a whole series of reasons, in fairness, most of which were unavoidable, it was a moment that they simply weren't allowed to witness in person. If they were able to watch it happen at all, it would have been on a stream on a mobile phone. Now, Leinster House is a sensitive place that does sensitive work, and for all sorts of security reasons, it's simply not open to any member of the public just to walk in and watch. In fairness, a couple of years ago, there was even an incident where one person broke through the main gate and tried to attack the building with a machete. Now, the theory is that any person can still get access to the building as long as they make arrangements through the office of their local TD. And it works. It means anyone can still come in. But it's hardly spontaneous, and it's not nearly completely transparent. And whatever your opinion on the subject at hand, it is simply a dreadful shame that so many people who would have been so deeply touched and affected by a truly historic night in their national parliament were quite literally locked outside the gates 
instead of being able to step inside their own Parliament building and see it for themselves in person. 100 to 102 Today FM. And before we finish this week, a very quick word to mark the passing of a very popular figure around Leinster House. On Monday morning, we learned of the sad passing of Peter Matthews, who was elected to the Dáil in 2011 with Fine Gael, who left the party in 2013 after losing the whip in a vote on abortion. Now, he was elected on a platform of banking expertise. He clearly felt a bit deflated when Fine Gael didn't make good on its promise to burn the banked bondholders. He felt it was a betrayal to his own voters and indeed to the country. And damned if he didn't become troublesome for Fine Gael afterwards, raising the matter at every opportunity, regularly bringing the ire of whoever was chairing at the time, when he raised it time and time and time and time again. Now, not everyone agreed with his politics. He famously wielded a set of rosary beads in an internal Fine Gael meeting during the debates about that abortion law in 2013. But everyone agreed that he held his views earnestly and that he held them without malice. Now, tributes were widely paid, of course, upon news of his death, but it was notable that some of the more glowing ones were paid from people on the opposite side of the spectrum to himself. Luke Ming Flanagan said that while shocked and saddened were words that you often hear, that was exactly how he felt when word came through that Peter had died. The two had clearly bonded because they were both sent to the Dáil in 2011 with one mission, to stop Irish citizens from having to pay bank debts that they didn't incur. More succinctly, John Collins TD simply said on Twitter... Peter and Matthews and I did not agree on very much politically, which made for great car journeys to Ballyhay. R.I.P. Peter. Uh, Peter Matthews was undoubtedly unlucky a year ago, doubly so in fact. Firstly because his constituency was reduced from five seats to three at the last election, but more so when he revealed early in that campaign that he had been diagnosed with esophageal cancer, which would limit his ability to campaign. Sadly, he didn't make it back to Leinster House in 2016, although he was a regular visitor. As it happens, this weekend marks Lollipop Day, the annual fundraiser for research into esophageal cancer. So if you see a fundraiser, it's a very good cause and it deserves a coin or two. The simplest and kindest thing that you could say about Peter Matthews is that he was both a gentleman and a gentleman. He'll be sadly missed. 100 to 102 Today FM. So, that was a hell of a week. Uh, feedback, thoughts, comments, anything you might like to say, you can say it on Twitter. I'm at Gav Riley. Or you can email me, gav at todayfm.com. That's gav, G-A-V, at todayfm.com. Back next week, hopefully by then, also available on the iTunes store, but still on SoundCloud and still available on todayfm.com to listen to wherever you are in the world. And who knows what scandals we might have been revolted by in the meantime. Until then, as always, thank you very much for listening. See you next week. I'm Gavin Riley, and that was The Week. to 102 Today FM.